Where are you when you're at your most vulnerable? Is it a crowded subway with headphones on? Is it an empty parking lot in the middle of the night? Or is it somewhere else? Is it somewhere like the bathroom? If you think about it, when you're in the bathroom, there's really not much you can do. You're preoccupied with bodily functions and there's really no way out. That's why we have locks. That's why it's always understood when the bathroom door is closed, you knock before entering. But what if the bathroom you're at isn't safe behind a locked door? What if it's high in the Andes mountains? And what if you get sick? You have to dig a hole. And just when you're ready to go, you hear the sound of foreign men with guns. That's the situation that ski and travel writer Bridget Mander found herself in just a couple of years ago in the wild lands of Argentina. So today we're going to talk to Bridget and we're going to find out how and why she was alone in the Andes Mountains when armed men with guns started approaching her in her most vulnerable moment. If you're ready to change your worldview and you're ready to get a little gross, take a step with me. Let's get lost. Three, two, one. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Get Lost Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sills, a freelance writer for Travel Channel. And where the fuck else do I write? Bridget? Um, <laughs> Business Insider, Fodor's, and Bassmaster Magazine, among other places. But today, I'm here with one of my special friends. She is a, uh accomplished writer who has had articles in the Wall Street Journal, Outside Magazine, and Backcountry Magazine, and her name is Bridget Mander, and she joins me now. Hi, Bridget. Hi, Joe. How's it going? It's good. How are you? I am fantastic. Uh, so we're doing this interview over Skype, so you guys may notice a little bit of a difference in the uh, audio quality, but I think it'll be fine. We've done this before. Um, Bridget, tell us a little bit about the subjects that you cover for your articles. You're mostly an outdoor writer, is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. Um, I'm trying, I've been trying to branch out and doing so. Um, I started out pretty much just writing about skiing and the ski world and ski culture. And it was just my way of getting paid to ski. Writing seemed like a better deal than trying to be a pro skier. So that's so all I did. So how did you get into skiing? Because you're not really from ski country, right? You're from New York. I Yeah, I'm from Long Island. My family did not ski. I was obsessed with skiing when I was little because I loved snow. And a lot of kids I went to school with skied in Vermont on the weekends. And it sounded so insanely exotic and amazing. And my parents just never wanted to go. So they, they were like, well, we're not taking you skiing. We Why didn't they want to take you to Vermont? Like, how far of a drive is that from Long Island? Oh. Hmm, I actually don't know. Far. Driving distances in the New York metro area are like a two-hour drive is like the equivalent of like a 10-hour drive out west. Because of the traffic and all of the like BS just, you have to go through? Yeah, you just don't do it much. I feel like Vermont, I don't know, maybe it was six or eight hours. I have no idea. They didn't want to go skiing. And skiing is expensive. Right, yeah. So... So how do you get into it then? Because obviously now, um, if you guys go to Bridget's website, BridgetManner.com, it's basically a collage of her skiing and badass alpine regions that you have to reach with a helicopter. Oh, well, sometimes we just ski tour. Usually we just ski tour. So explain ski touring real quick for like people in the South that don't know anything but humidity and mosquitoes. Well, I, I've written some explanatory uh, ski touring articles for the Wall Street Journal, but um, 
to help people who really have no concept of understand it because it is confusing and weird but basically when you're ski touring it, you use a slightly different setup that enables you to also climb up the hill instead of using a ski lift or a helicopter or a snowmobile and that is bindings that release your heel for the uphill part so you can take steps and a slightly more flexible boot and then on the bottom of the ski, you have a removable like nylon and mohair skin. It's um, a synthetic version kind of of calf skin, if you can imagine that. So one side glides, the other direction grips. And that's the way that you move up the hill on the snow. So for some reason, when you say mohair, I'm just picturing like everyone dressed as Elton John hucking their way up a mountain. like. <laughs> I mean, sometimes that happens. Yeah. There's no reason you can't dress up to go uphill. I guess it's true. So anyway, but, yeah. uh, you've made your way now from Long Island. You learned to ski. Now you live in the beautiful town of Jackson, Wyoming. And you have access to the mountains and in the wintertime, ski slopes all year round, right? Yeah, we... We backcountry ski, which is without the ski lift, before the ski hill opens if it's a good year. So we might start skiing Then you can use the chairlifts for a Jackson Hole Mountain Resort for four months of the year. And then in the spring, when they close, there's usually lots of snow left. So we can ski, um, depending on how much snow happened that year, through May or June almost. And then for a bunch of years, I spent every spare time I had to go down to South America to go skiing because it's winter in the Southern Hemisphere when it's our summer. So I'd leave here in August to stay, usually try to stay through September and spend that time in Chile and mostly in Argentina in the Andes. So that's pretty incredible, um, especially for a lot of listeners this podcast, I think. That's an extremely exotic location, it's sort of like Vermont in a lot of ways. <laughs> you know, when I didn't know how to ski, Vermont was as exotic as anywhere <laughs> with snow. I guess it's all in perspective. Um, so the reason we want to have you on today is because you once told me a story that no pressure, but this is probably one of the like top 10 most ridiculous stories I've ever heard in my life. And <laughs> <laughs> okay, tra travel writers have a lot of stories, and you know, you don't always get to hear the good ones from people. But we were in Spain a few months ago, and Bridget and I had basically a whole day to kill, like after our group had left. So we're walking around Granada, Spain, and basically just shooting the shit and eating gelato. And Bridget tells me the story that you're about to hear now, which involves the military, border patrol, desolate remote locations, extreme poverty, and poop. <laughs> Do you oh. want to tell us how you ended up in a remote region of Patagonia in a border patrol hut? Um. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. <laughs> um, well, I had been down there skiing for a while, and I was on the Argentine side, and I think, I can't really remember, I think I was flying out of Santiago. So I had been down, I had spent a bunch of time along the Cordillera, and then I had ended up down in Bariloche to visit my good friend from when I used to compete on the free skiing tour, who she's Argentine and based down there. And then I had like a week left and I decided to go visit this tiny, t I had to go back up north. I think I, was, I think I was making my way back to Santiago. So I had met this guy a few years ago who ran a hostel in this tiny town called Caviawe, which is okay. in the Neuquén province. And I decided, he, he had said it was amazing skiing and they had snowmobiles, which is amazing in Argentina because any imported machinery um, motorized vehicles are really expensive. 
and that there were hot springs, like all these amazing hot springs all around this town. So I was like, oh, I'm going to go to Kaviawe. So I hop on the bus. Argentina has a really great, super low budget, like transnational bus system. I took the bus from Bariloche to Neuquén. And then I transferred to this tiny bus that goes like twice a week to Kaviawe. And Kaviawe is this tiny town. It, I wouldn't say it was like super poverty stricken, but pretty bare bones. And but I'm what not kind of sure. what kind of facilities I mean you have there like what sort of infrastructure are you looking at and and describe this bus is it like a nice bus or are we on like sort of a sketchy in my mind I'm picturing like rickety bus uh, it wasn't it wasn't super rickety I've definitely been on much ricketier buses in Argentina um, it was like a smaller version of a I don't know how you would describe it. It wasn't like they're nicer overnight buses. <laughs> it's just, I don't know. It was, they've got like the little curtains on the windows and the seats kind of recline and you hang out. So it's r roughly like a Greyhound, like a more modern, like not the 1960s Greyhound in your mind, but something sort of like that. Yeah, I mean, it was a modern-ish bus. It was probably like 10 or 15 years old, I guess. Okay, cool. It wasn't so super old. So you get on this bus and you go to this little town and then what do you find when you get there? Uh, well, it's super small and there's not much there. There is a little ski hill in Kaviawe, um, but really mellow, you know, no big base area, just like a couple lifts and a little hut at the bottom for you to change in. Um, and then a few houses, a little grocery store, like a bar or two. And then <clears throat> our friend Caniche, um, his real name was Ruben, but everyone called him Caniche because he had crazy curly black hair. And Caniche is like kind of the equivalent of poodle in Spanish. <laughs> All right, cool. And at this point, I had been down in Argentina enough times and for enough period, like long periods of time that I had pretty decent Spanish. And I also worked really hard and traveled around with a Spanish verb book, like my own little school. Like a, like a literally like a little pocketbook of verbs and stuff? No, a giant, giant book uh, called 501 Spanish Verbs. They have them in for all the languages. They're amazing. And, and a dictionary. <laughs> that, that explains also how we were able to navigate Spain, because Bridget was basically the de facto translator. Well, sort of. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Anyway, so I get there and Kanichi's like, oh yeah, you made it, it's so great. And his hostel's really cool. It's a, it's like a two-story house, it's wood. The downstairs was like Kanichi's living quarters and a big gathering room, like a kitchen. And then upstairs were these little rooms. Like, I think they were all bunk bedrooms. Um, and so I was really stoked and I skied around a few days and like had a nice time and then um, but I hadn't been to these hot springs yet. And the only other people staying here, um, Kaviawe is a big place for kite skiers, which is when it's like kite surfing, only people use skis on snow. So that sounds well, pretty wicked. It is, yeah. And so Kaviawe is actually pretty famous for that. And there were these French kite skiers staying there that I made friends with. And they were leaving their. They were leaving the next day and they were like, let's go out. So I was like, okay, yeah, let's go out. So we go out to um, like the only bar in town and they have like nothing there. We're the only people there. <laughs> there's not really anything to drink there. Um, like there's no beer at the bar? Well, I mean, maybe there was some beer, but it was like a pretty bare cupboard of a bar. Um, you know, Kami always not that happening. Like there's some tourism, but it's really small and it's I really isolated. I forget how long the bus ride was from Neuquén, but it's a bus ride across nothing, like flat, nothing. Um, but then you get into the mountains, like you're in some rolling hills and then you're at the foot of the Andes. So we go there and we, Argentines love Fernet, which is like this liqueur and Coke, like they love it. They drink it all the time. So we're in the Argentine way of doing things. So we drink like, I think we drank the bar dry of their Fernet. It was like me and these four French kite skiers. Fernet um, and Coke. 
Yeah. Oh, we, we drank a lot of it. Um, and then we go like stagger back like the 500 feet to Cunny Jays and fall asleep. And everyone's a wreck <laughs> the next day. You know, like I said, there's a twice a week bus. Um, so the next day we all wake up late. I don't have to leave, but the French kite skiers had to leave. They had to take the bus out because they had to get back to Buenos Aires for their flight to France. Like they had to take the bus or they were screwed and going to miss other connections, including their flight home. So um, we wake up and everyone's just like this fog, disaster, and they're like, oh my God, we got to get out of here. So they're scrambling, throwing things in bags and they run out the door. You know, we're like, bye, bye. You know, we became Facebook friends and they take off. They make the bus by like 30 seconds. Wow. <laughs> it's in the street when they're like piling out of Caniche's hostel. Um, and so they leave and then I'm, I'm left all by myself feeling horrible. And Caniche, they eat really simple breakfast most of the time in South America. So like bread and jam. And he had left out a basket of this bread and jam. And I was feeling miserable. That's the cure for a hangover is bread and jam. <laughs> So I, I don't normally eat bread because I'm somewhat gluten intolerant. I don't like talking about it because it's so trendy, but it will often make me fairly ill. Yeah, but you do I've sound already... super lame right now. Super trendy. Oh, yeah, very trendy. Uh, anyway, I didn't really care. I was like, I need the bread. I need the jam. I need something. So I eat the bread and the jam. I ate like all of it. ate the whole basket. And then I'm just like staggering around. Kaniche's common room, like miserable, like bumping into walls, knocking things over. And Kaniche's like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, you know, I feel badly. I feel sick. And so he's like, listen, you know what you need to do today? You need to go ski tour to Las Maquinas. It's a massive hot spring. It's so easy to find and you can swim in it. He's like, it's turquoise blue. It's the perfect temperature. You skin up to it, you jump in. It's in the middle of a snowfield. So I was like, oh, okay. Well, how do I get there? So he's like, you go up the ski hill. So, and then skin across the snowfield. He's like, just go in the direction of like, I forget what thing he mentioned. He's like, you can't miss it. So I was like, okay. So <laughs> I walked to the bottom of the ski hill in my shoes, <clears throat> my little pumas that were falling apart. And I hid them under a rock and I put on my ski boots. And I didn't want to buy a lift ticket because I was like, the end of my trip broke, which, you know, the lift tickets at this place were probably like $12, but I didn't want to spend $12. You're still broke because that's like when you're ski bumming, $12 is kind of a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. And I still had like several days left in South America, <laughs> including having to get from Caviawe to Santiago, which are not near each other. So... I skin up the ski hill and then I get to the, the top lift where they don't check for tickets and I I like scoot over to it. When you have the skins on the bottom of your skis, they're not as glidey, of course, as your regular ski base. So I scooch over trying not to look suspicious and weird and get in front of the chair and smile at the lifty and like, you know, stand there and the chair comes around and like, nails me in the back of the legs because <laughs> my skis don't slide. So the guy almost stopped the lift. He's like, oh my God. But I, I hadn't wanted to take them off because then it would be suspicious and obvious that I hadn't paid. I had just walked up the hill on my skis. Yeah, way to act natural. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I was like, I don't know, no problem. And I just like waved and the lift kept going and he was like, okay. And then I get off at the top um, and on the chairlift up, I managed to take my skins off. So my skis are sliding. I get off and I'm like, okay, let me head out. So I head out in this direction, out of the ski hill onto this big flat, like plateau of snow where the last Machinus hot spring is. So we, I'm skidding along. And I also, in addition to feeling terrible, am prone to post alcohol, like anxiety and just like not a high functioning individual after drinking. And so. <laughs> so you get I, like freaked out, like when you have a hangover, it weirds you out. Yeah, yeah. Like in this, um, yeah, just can't really navigate like my existence kind of way. And okay. so I, but 
you know, skiing is a very comfortable place for me. So I'm like, it's fine. I'm touring across this safe, flat snowfield. No problem. I'm going to get to the nice hot spring and get in it and then go back to Caniche's. I'm feeling much better. But as I head out of the ski hill, you know, it's like a very, um, a lot of thermal activity here, obviously. And so in this part of the snowfield, I have to cross a lake. And I was like, oh my God, it's so frozen. Like, I'm sure there was feet of ice on it. But because I had this kind of anxiety building, I didn't want to cross the lake because all I could think about was falling through the lake and no one would know where I was and I couldn't get out of the lake and I'd be on my skis on and it would be terrible and that'd be the end of me. So I go around the lake <laughs> and get maybe a little bit off track, but I don't, I'm like, oh, it's all right. I know where I'm going still. And then there's like some little areas in the, the next snowfield that are kind of like steaming fumaroles, like open spots where steam is coming out. It's like very this normal is, activity for here. So. Uh, it sounds crazy. It sounds like you're in like some sort of frozen land of the lost with like geothermal vents and steam and like mountain peaks all around you. Well, you are. I mean, it's also spectacularly beautiful. Let me just say, you know, we're on this like smaller little massif of mountains and then the huge Andes are just like right next to it, which we're not totally in when you're in Kaviawe. And it's very normal. Like these aren't new steaming vents. They're always there. They're just steaming vents. But I got scared of the steaming vents because I was hungover and very anxious. So I did You didn't have again. any more liqueur and Coke either. So you're just like, oh, shit. I'm out of liqueur and Coke. I'm up here. I've got a hangover. There's steaming vents everywhere. I need to get back to Caniche's Poodle Palace somehow. But first, well, no. I want to go to these hot springs. I'm still trying to get to the hot springs. <laughs> so anyway, I go around the different rules and I'm just like, I'm getting, I'm whatever. He said it's just out here and I could find it. It's easy to find. So I'm just like striking out across the snowfield at this point. And it's already been a lot longer than he ever said. He was like, oh, it takes like under an hour to get there. And I've been staggering around the snowfield for like two hours. And so and then I start to feel like, Severe abdominal disturbances. I think from eating the whole basket of bread on top of being this ill from alcohol. Awful. <laughs> so awful. But yeah, you know, I'm on this giant ice field. I have seen no sign of humans since I left the ski hill. So I was like, oh my God, I just, you know, like sort of green around the gills and I'm like sweaty and oh, it was so terrible. So I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to deal with this. So I, had my avalanche gear with me, which is always in my ski pack, which is what you use when you're ski touring because you're uncontrolled snow. Like ski patrol will bomb a, a ski area for avalanches, but if you're touring, it's natural snow activity. So you always have this equipment with you, and part of that rescue equipment is a shovel. So I, I like I okay. So I stop. At, like this is sort of traumatic for me too because. Um, you know, it's a wide open snowfield, even though I haven't seen any people. So I just, just dig my little latrine and I'm like, oh my God, okay, I, I'm going to feel so much better. And uh, wow. so, Wait you know, I'm better. What? What? So wait, wait, wait. So your connection's breaking up a little bit because you're in Wyoming and stuff. But where, where we're at is like you, you've gotten lost sort of or you're starting to feel loss because you're several hours out from where you were supposed to be and then yeah. you're sick because you're gluten intolerant which is real <laughs> so you have to go to the bathroom you have to go number two and the only way to do it is to dig a hole in the snow yeah yeah and that's so where I, we're at yeah so, and then what happens well i'm feeling a little bit better i've been hanging out in my hole for a few minutes. <laughs> oh, so you were down there a while. <laughs> um, yeah. And then I I saw something. It's not like a completely flat plane. You know, it's a little bit of a rolling snow formations and snow drifts. And I see like a flash of movement over the crest of like kind of a rise in the snow a few hundred feet away. And I was like, oh, what is that? <laughs> and then uh, this, I hear someone 
I just like hear some voices in Spanish and I was like, Oh my God. So like mortified. So I, you know, like get myself back together. I'm throwing my shovel in my pack and kicking snow in the hole. And I start skinning away as fast as I can because I am super embarrassed. And, um, I hear the voices, they're louder, and they're like, espera, espera, which is wait, wait, in Spanish. So I turn around, and it's four Argentines and a dog in army uniforms on foot because the snow is not, it's hard snow. So they weren't falling through it. And I was like, oh my God, this is so embarrassing. So they're like, they come up to me, and they're all mad, and they're like, what are you doing, you know? Um, we're speaking in Spanish. They're like, what are you doing out here? And I was like, I'm trying to find Las Maquinas. And they're like, Las Maquinas is way over there. What are you doing here? And I was like, I just, I was lost. And they were like, you know, and I'm sure that they had seen my, um, you know, attempt with the, my little latrine and just waited until I like, got myself together. You to look very back. suspicious. You're like shuffling around, you're digging holes, you're kicking snow, like you're burying something valuable. Yeah, so then they're like, um, you know, Argentina and, and Chile too are a little bit different, you know. The women aren't necessarily as independent in general. Not, there are a lot of independent ladies down there, but in general, you wouldn't find like an Argentine woman out doing what I was doing by herself on a snowfield, just skiing around. So they're like, well, we don't believe you. Why are you here? Where are you from? So I was like, I'm from the United States and I'm trying to find Las Machinas. They're like, well, you know, because I was so far off it and they were suspicious. And I should explain that Argentina and Chile have this like long running, like low level kind of hatred and distrust of each other. And they constantly are like policing and controlling their borders. You know, like there's, I would say probably an incredibly low chance that one of them is going to invade the other, but they always have this military presence. <laughs> and so that's what these guys are part of the Argentine military. And they had been stationed out here because that's, that was a border post. So you just happened to be getting lost and pooping in the border region between Argentina and Chile. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't know where I was, but I didn't know that there was this army outpost so I was like, you know, explaining myself because I really have nothing to hide. But this story to them just seems so weird. Like, why is this American girl out here by herself trying to find Las Machinas? And she's not anywhere near Las Machinas and her story does not add up. And I was like, I, I don't know. That's the story. So they're like, well, come with us. You have to talk to our commander. So I had to follow them on my skis as we walk on, as they walked on foot back to their freaking border post which is like this big white building down in a depression how and, far was that from where they caught you um you know it wasn't that far i'd say maybe a quarter mile okay but you know you couldn't see it because it was down like like i said the snowfield's not that flat so we go and um oh my god so they they made me come in and i had to sit down and i didn't have my passport with me but i knew the number so I had to recite it for them and then like go through this whole interrogation with them again. And I was just like, hey guys, I'm really, I just want to get in Las Machinas. Like I, I don't feel good, obviously. <laughs> I got lost. Like I'm not from Chile. I'm not working for the Chileans. Like I just am a lost American skier trying to find the hot springs. <laughs> so like there for like literally two or three hours. By the time they stopped interrogating me, to their satisfaction that I am not a spy or some kind of like unsavory character. And they start asking me all these questions about American pop culture what? and music what? and my favorite bands and magazines and this and that. And like, I was like, what? Oh my God. <laughs> you know, what? speaking is a struggle for me this day. And speaking in Spanish is like a much mightier struggle. Okay. Like, you're so like wicked hungover. <laughs> oh like a mess, you know, and I really just like declining as the day goes on, to be honest as well. <laughs> so, so they, you know, finally I'm like, okay, you guys, I feel like I should go if it's okay, because I have to get back before dark. <laughs> so they're like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, here you go. Las Machinas is right over there and Kaviyawe is that direction. Like have fun, have a great time. 
So they're all standing in the doorway waving goodbye. I'm sure they actually haven't seen any girls in a while either. Um, but they're like, bye, bye, Joe. And so off I skin. And of course, I skin right by Las Machinas in a few hundred feet. This like fantastically beautiful, huge pothole in the snowfield, like blue and green, steaming. But at this point, it is kind of late. And I was like, I need to get back. And I don't feel like getting in Las Machinas anymore. <laughs> so, You're like traumatized. Trauma and- totally traumatized. <laughs> so anyway, I'm just, I skin back and I'm making my way back. I'm, I don't feel lost this time. I like power through the fumaroles and around the lake, but I know where I'm going now. So on my way though, I, my binding, these bindings that come loose at the heel, actually broke then at the toe because I'm skinning across the snow. So the binding is broken. So I have to stop and I had some repair stuff in my pack and I had to repair it with wire. But this takes another like, I don't know, probably half an hour. So I'm just like, I get a fix and I'm like, oh my God. Okay. Phew. So then I keep skinning and then like another half a mile farther, my pole basket falls off my pole. Like it just comes off as I'm leaning on it and I fall all the way down this incline because without your pole basket, the pole sinks completely into the snow. So I fall down and now I have like one semi-functioning binding and one useless ski pole. So I'm limping along. I finally, it's dim at this point too. Like it is evening. I get to the ski hill. I very gingerly ski down the groomed run because I don't want my binding to totally break. I get to the bottom. I go to the rock where, my sh- where I left my shoes. No shoes. Someone your pumas? Has- your raggedy pumas? Like yeah. trustworthy pumas. But the sole was falling off them. Um, Very trustworthy. Has stolen them. So now <laughs> I have to walk a mile back to Caniche's in my ski boots, which for people who don't ski is when you're walking in ski boots on land, it is incredibly uncomfortable and miserable. So because they're like really rigid, they're really hard and rigid, right? Like they're yeah. not for walking. Yeah, it's kind of like if you were walking with like cinder blocks stuck to your feet. So that was awesome. So I get back to Kenichi's, and on my way, I'm like, I'm so hungry now. I'm gonna stop at the store so I can eat something besides bread. So I go past the one little store in town, which is closed. So I'm like, oh, whatever. So then I continue on the like 300 feet to Kenny Chase. I go in the door. I throw all my stuff inside the door. Like I just strip of all my ski gear, which is mostly broken. And I just go upstairs and lie down and go to sleep. (laughs) Wow. My God. Yeah. And then the next day, um, or no. Yeah, it was the next day. It was the other weekly bus. And I just got on the bus and I went back to Santiago, which was a series of buses. You have to take the bus from Caviaway to Neuquén, and then I think it was Neuquén to Mendoza, Mendoza-Santiago, and then a bus from Santiago to the airport. So it was a very exhausting end to my trip. So I have a couple of questions. First of all, that's definitely as ridiculous as I remember it being. Yeah. Uh, But a couple of questions, like one... What's going through your mind when they're asking you pop culture questions? And like, what kind of pop culture questions are they asking you? Oh my God. I forget exactly. They were asking me, well, like I knew when the tables had turned right from this like interrogation to like, oh, okay. Like we have a captive little visitor now and we haven't seen girls or outsiders in weeks or months. Who knows how long the poor guys have been stationed out there. Um, and so they were like, oh, do you know this person or that person? Do you listen to this band? Like they literally, I forget the bands they were naming, but they were like the cheesiest like boy bands. <laughs> oh. So like, have you heard of like 98 Degrees? Like, do you listen to NSYNC still? Kind of, yeah. Um, basically, yes. And... Oh, and they, I think they would like brought out one of their magazines to show me, you know, which was like a pop culture magazine, nothing creepy. And, uh, and I was relieved because this meant like 
I had passed the test of um, suspicious people and I wasn't suspicious anymore. But now it meant that I was like their captive entertainment. So like I said, I, I kind of humored them for probably an hour. And then I was like, I can't, I can't speak in Spanish anymore. I'm exhausted mentally and physically. I got to get out of here because based on my experiences getting out to what is apparently a simple place to arrive at, which was really difficult for me in a meandering, zigzagging, abdominal disturbance, humiliating parade. It's like, I got to get back. And luckily, I did leave early because then all my gear failed on the way back, which has never happened to me before or since. I have never had a binding break or a ski pole basket break, much less in the same, like, hour in an isolated ice field in, like, you know, the Argentine Andes. So, yeah, it was fun. Also, and then the shoe stolen was really, like, the cherry. It was really great. The cherry on top? The cherry was the store being closed. I can't remember. It was, it just kept getting worse. (laughs) Was there ever a point, like, you were, like, actually concerned for, like, being able to get back to Caniche's? No, I wasn't concerned that I wouldn't make it. Like, I had a headlamp. I knew, and especially if it got dark, I'd be able to kind of see the lights of town below. But I really was not excited about the prospect of, you know, being still up on the snowfield in the dark. Totally. Um, not at all. And also, Kanichi would have been worried about me because the other, like, in the last insult to this, like, day of injury was Kanichi was like, what took you so long? Did you find Las Machinas? <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to bed. I'm going upstairs. <laughs> You're bed. like, yes, I found it, but I'm not going to tell you how I found it. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't end up getting in it. It's a long story. Good night. <laughs> so do you think you'll ever go back there and like sort of, you know, recreate the day the way it should have been? Of course, I would love to go back there, actually. Um, and I've been back to Argentina since then, but not to Caviawe, Um, which really is a spectacularly beautiful, like, such a cool place. It's more of like a local ski hill than an international destination, unless you're a kite skier. Um, But it's got these amazing sort of prehistoric trees around it, too, called Araucarias. Um, They're also called monkey trees. Um, What do they look like? They're they're hard to describe. They, They kind of look like pines, but they're clearly not pines. They have like huge needles in like a kind of a interesting branch formations. The old ones are really, really big. Um, they have a really interesting bark. And then it has all these crazy basil stone formations, like hexagonal pillars everywhere, plus an actual active volcano, and plus the, the hot springs and some talkative border guys if you ever want to go practice your Spanish. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> but I would definitely go back there. It's really out of the way, which is why I had only made it there the, the one time, <laughs> which didn't go that well. So, yeah, I, I think I could go back there and um, redo it in a more sane and collected way. So what advice would you give somebody, um, let's say somebody who's, a comfortable skier here in the States, but they want to make that trip and they want to go down to South America and start skiing that part of the world. Where would you begin and where would your ultimate destination be? Um, well, there are actually, there aren't that many ski resorts in Argentina and Chile, considering the the scale and the immensity and how amazing the, the mountains are. Um, but that's because it's a very expensive sport. Uh, but, Right around Santiago, Chile, there are a few mountains that are really like catered to international visitors. So they have all the amenities, they groom the slopes, they have easy slopes, and they're not hard to get to. Right. right. Um, and there'll be people around speaking English. So places like that would be um, Valle Nevado, which is right outside of Santiago, <clears throat> um, Portillo, which is actually owned by some Americans. And it's a very famous ski resort. It's really cool. 
Um, and in Argentina, uh, Bariloche is actually amazing. Like a really fun, there are three cool ski hills there. Um, Catedral, <clears throat> Cerro Baixo, and um, Chapelco. And Catedral is right outside of Bariloche, which is a city of about a quarter of a million people on a lake. In It's called the Lake District of Argentina. <clears throat> it's really beautiful. And so tons to do there besides skiing. <clears throat> Bariloche rings a bell. I think I saw a Discovery Channel show that's uh, apparently there were like a lot of Germans after World War II that went to that area, something like that. Is that well, yeah. sound familiar? Um, yes, actually. Well, the Lake District has a huge amount of Central European influence, but a lot of the immigration was actually pre-World War II. So it wasn't like Nazis fleeing. Um, which did happen in Argentina to, on a big scale. But um, this was more Swiss and German and Austrian immigrants coming over in the early 20th century. Okay, so they liked the mountains and that it was like sort of reminiscent of where they were from? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of sort of Swiss and Austrian architecture there. Um, there's like huge chocolate making businesses. It's famous for its chocolate. It's delicious. <laughs> um, ice cream. Um, and yeah, you know, Argentina has a ton of European immigration as well, but there are a lot of very European looking people in these mountain towns, um, just because there's so much central European heritage. Yeah. So, uh, one other question I had for you is like going back to an American who hasn't skied South America before, um, how much experience on the slopes would you say somebody needs like out in Colorado or somewhere like that before they're able to go down to South America and really have a enjoyable time without like trying to kill themselves? Um, you know, I don't think you need that much, especially depending on where you go. Um, <clears throat> so a lot of, <laughs> this sounds mean, but like a lot of South Americans are terrible skiers <laughs> they just go and they have a great time you've never seen people who are such bad skiers having such a good time and it's actually really inspiring and reminds you that skiing you don't need an ego like it's just a fun and super silly sport sliding on the snow um <clears throat> so you could go to any of the major resorts really las leñas in argentina is like the pinnacle of free skiing um, so I wouldn't recommend that place. That could be your ultimate goal if you want to ski some big, scary lines. But yeah, otherwise, uh, Valle Nevado, Portillo, um, uh, what is the one there? Shoot, I'm forgetting it. Oh, Nevados de Chijan, which is in Southern Chile, is also another big destination, like plenty of infrastructure. They have wide open groomed slopes, you know, very Vale-like. And Vale is really accessible to people who haven't skied a ton. Yeah, right. So, um, yeah, it's not going to be your, like, amenity-laden, like, luxury spa, this and that, that you sometimes get marketed in, the, in North America. Like, it's kind of a pure ski experience. It's a really cool cultural experience. Like, I love it. I love skiing in South America. Actually, sounds perfect because it seems like you can get away from like some of the stigma and the the BS that comes with some of the ski resorts here in the states. Oh, uh, for least... sure, astronomically cheaper. Like, sure, you have to buy an expensive plane ticket down there, but um, it is so much. Everything's so much cheaper, especially in Argentina. The wine, <laughs> the meat, and the lodging, and the lift tickets—like everything. What would you say? Like, give me like a week's budget ski bumming in Argentina in American <laughs> dollars. <clears throat> ski bumming? Yeah. Like you go down there and give me like your ski bum budget and then give me like you're just a normal tourist. Like how much should you bring for a week? <laughs> I mean, I couldn't even believably probably tell you what I used to spend. I mean, I used to spend like nothing. Um, maybe like a, maybe $200 a week. Maybe that would probably be on the high end. Wow. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, and like a normal person with a family who's not like totally dirtbagging their way through everything. Um, gosh, I don't know. I bet you could like vacation like royalty for like a thousand bucks 
a week with uh, multiple people, not in solid. Yeah, you guys listening should know, like, um, Bridge and I were in Wyoming, I guess it was last week. Um, and we're both the type to kind of take off and in the woods for a weekend with just tents and backpacks. So grain of salt with, you know, when you hear about cheap travel, it sometimes comes with a tent or hostels. Um, yeah, ways to make it cheaper in South America. I would go down there for a long period of time. So like being really efficient with my time wasn't a huge goal. You know, so say I flew into Buenos Aires and I took an overnight bus to Mendoza and then to Las Lanias as opposed to taking a flight. And the bus was like $30, maybe. Um, and then you show up and you get accommodation with a bunch of other like North American or European free skiers that you know. And you're spending like, again, 25 bucks a night or something. And you're eating like jamon crudo and cheese all the time. And yeah, Does that, is that helpful? But you I think so. We'll get, if, maybe we'll get some feedback and people can tell us whether it's <laughs> helpful or not. No, even if you go to like a real restaurant, especially like I said in Argentina, because unfortunately for them, their economy is somewhat in the tank still. Um, but yeah, you can eat out at a really nice restaurant and order the most amazing things on the menu, like super high quality that would cost you like over $100 per person, I bet, in the States in a nice restaurant and you know, it's like 20 bucks. It's fantastic. That's, that's amazing. So as we start to wrap up here, I guess I want to talk about the aftermath of your escapade um, up in the mountains with the Border Patrol and gear breaking and stuff. Uh, you ended up writing an article about it, but I think you told me a while back that this was sort of an embarrassing story and you kind of kept it to yourself for a while. <laughs> I did not tell anyone about it for like a solid year. Um, and mostly, you know, a lot of it's really funny, like just for just having anxiety about crossing the lake and going around the fumaroles and getting lost. But like the kind of like being caught pooping in the snow by four army men from Argentina was humiliating for me. Like I was so embarrassed. Like I, I can't even tell you. Um, it was horrible. <laughs> you, should, you feel like they saw you for sure. Like. The timing okay. just happened to be like, they yeah. walk over a ridge and you're there. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they saw me. I think that's why they were kind of yelling before they came back over the rise. <laughs> I tried to convince myself for a little bit that they hadn't, but then I was like, you know, there's just no way. There is no way they didn't see me. So that was awesome. But I was so embarrassed. And yeah, I ended up writing about it. For the Ski Journal, which is one of my favorite places to contribute, it's a quarterly magazine about skiing and ski culture. And I was so embarrassed at the time. Even then, it was like a couple years later, I insisted on using a, a fake name. I wrote it under the name of Gypsy Marino. <laughs> oh, that's definitely legit. Yeah, I do kind of regret it now. But, um, yeah. Well, I guess the secret is out now. Um, so yeah. everyone listening to this podcast will know. Bridgetmander.com uh, once got busted pooping in Argentina by the military. So. Yep. And then, yeah. Well, Surprise thanks for... Interrogation for not being a spy from Chile. I feel like they probably thought you were. And, and that's why they interrogated you for so long. You're oh, like, yeah. They just couldn't believe, like, what a weird story. They were like, what? We just don't. This makes no sense. We don't believe you. <laughs> amazing well thanks for coming on and sharing it i want to get you back sometime because you've got another story about getting um more or less abducted by the chilean military this time <laughs> so maybe next season we can have you on and you can tell us about that <laughs> yes that um that was also a story early much earlier in my travels when i didn't speak any spanish <laughs> that was cool I think that one's going to be awesome. So we'll look forward to it. Thanks, Bridget. All right. Thanks for having me, Joe. Good to talk. You're welcome. All right. Talking to myself again, wondering if this traveling is good. Is there something better doing? We'd be doing 
if we could And oh, the stories we could tell And if this all blows up and goes to hell Well, I hope that we can sit back on a bed in some hotel Sing you all the stories we can tell Remember that guitar, that museum in Tennessee Name played on the glass, brought back 20 melodies And the scratches on her face told of every time he'd fell Singing every story he could tell And oh, the stories it could tell And I bet you it still rings just like a bell And I hope that we can sit back on a bed in some hotel All the stories we can tell Trucking dang near every night Singing for your living Beneath the brightly colored lights And if you ever wonder Why you ride this carousel We do it for the stories we can tell And oh, 